If Fog Could Sing Stories by Charlie Price Gift by Charlie Price Read by Robert Price It has doubtless occurred before in the world, in fact I know it has, that some greedy soul, carrying under his arm a bottle of scotch intended as a birthday present for someone or other, not himself, could not resist opening the lid and taking a swig, in the belief that the eventual recipient would be none the wiser upon receiving and opening the bottle. But having satisfied whatever thirst it was that drove him to pollute the gift's integrity in the way that he did, this same appetite remains far from quenched, and he takes a second swig, deeper, longer, and less reluctant than the first. I find it difficult to forget that scene in Once Upon a Time in America, where that small, pubescent and libidinous young Jew who had managed to save the dollars for a big creamy cake that, according to custom, the neighbourhood whore would happily accept as payment for her participation in the act, was forced to wait for her to return from an outing. While he waited in the stairway with the confection, he couldn't resist picking at it, tentatively, and then finally fully devouring it. Two cakes, you see. Two sweets. One juvenile, one adult. I know this possession. I am even enchanted by it. The dignity lost, the saddened lips and cheeks incriminated with cream. My thirst, or should I say hunger, was not for wantons, cream cakes, or whiskey, but rather a rabbit. I had purchased from the pet shop for my four-year-old daughter's birthday. To eat, I mean not to keep, and raise, and feed. I did not and do not have time to give to such an endeavour. I was coming down after what me and my wife, Vera, referred to euphemistically as a hiatus, to attend my daughter May's birthday. Her birthday wasn't in May, though, but in October. But how did I end up eating a pet rabbit? And what did I do? How did I muddle on after having succumbed to such a temptation? So, I was making good time along a particularly long stretch of the South Western Railway. My course, topographically speaking, descended sharply southward, towards the fingernail tip the thorn tip of the land, known by the name Penzance. And I had a small bag of possessions at my feet. And to the right of me, a hutch, softened with plump piles of hay, like cut hair, in which a small, sleeping, nameless white rabbit was nested, still with slumber. A water feeder that was fixed onto the side of one of the hutch's netted walls bubbled, occasionally, in protest at the wobble and rock of the train as it rushed along its track. I was hungry and very parched, and therefore looking forward to the snack trolley coming past. But I was unhappy to learn 
that the buffet car had to be cancelled due to staff shortages. Please accept our apologies for any inconvenience caused, the lady's voice said over the speakers. The world suddenly seemed very bleak. The announcement had punctured the small warm bubble of contentment in which I'd felt safely encompassed. I felt thrust into a kind of cold poverty because of its cancellation. I could imagine, with such comforting clarity, the trolley's rickety and cumbersome journey down the aisle, pushed by one of those familiar women in a uniform mostly of red, and how she'd sound out the trolley's approach, and all the packets of tea and coffee and the fizzing kettle, and the cooler of little beers and ciders, and the tray stacked to fullness with kilt-coloured shortbread packets and crisps and packaged ham sandwiches. The curious and pathetic excitement of catching the lady's attention as she passed before it was too late. The exchange. Transaction. The cup of something and bite of something on the table before me, rendering the lengthy stretches of time spent watching the world go by in the big windows all the more pleasurable and somehow less pedestrian. What a void was left in the snack trolley's absence. I, my problems, my hunger, my thirst, and a rabbit. I looked beyond my seat, one way and then the other, down the geometric infinity of the aisle, hoping to observe the snack trolley coming at me from afar. But there was nothing in sight, in any direction, anywhere along that daunting vertical. The train shook at that moment with a clunk, some minor upset or kink in the track, and the carriage clattered with a harsh shudder. The rabbit stirred, rubbing the long pink slippers of his ears with a nervous little motion and snuffling softly as he blinked and unblinked a few times in succession, revealing and concealing the glossy darkness of his large and gleaming eyes. He seemed suddenly very fetching. I was taken with his soft, furry body, his shining hairs, his sugar-coloured white coat, his big, glossy eyes, his beautiful, perceptive ears, and the mittens of his four short legs. He seemed warm and without complaint, a pure serenity incarnated in animal form. I wanted to share in his warmth, his calm, his softness. I wanted him close. I wanted his touch. It was the same feeling that I once felt about my teddy, when I had a teddy. The name escapes me, though. The same inclination, hot, inside me that drove me into a tight embrace of him, whatever his name was. So I opened the cage door, and out stepped the rabbit. He was a little reluctant, but not disobedient. Shh, 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 I said, my lips mouthing and sighing words of pacification as I laid a pacifying hand upon his head. I'm going to call you Malcolm, I think I said aloud, after Malcolm X, a hero of mine. Aren't you lovely? And he seemed to wordlessly agree. I imagined the look on May's face 
when the dispatch of Malcolm the Rabbit was enacted between me and her. Then I thought of the long, hopeless, agonised and looping conversations with Vera, and all the stubbornness she possessed, rearing its femalely ugly head full force, completely destroying the chances of any kind of amicable discourse, refusing to hear my point of view, and I suddenly felt very sick, sort of seasick. It was a turbulence rocking like a cradle in my head. On one side, May's little face, lighting up with Malcolm the Rabbit. On the other, Vera, looking at me with that cursed and cursing look in her eyes and finding the words for nothing but accusation, accusation and shoving them endlessly at me. My stomach rumbled without warning, and it was too much. There was nothing to do but one thing. It had a sure inevitability about it. I knew what must be done. I opened my mouth into a great red yawn as far as the jaws could diverge, and then I brought them together on the rabbit's furred flesh and took a large, greedily large, full, bloody bite out of his stomach. Blood shot immediately and fast, full jets from the wound, splashing the whiteness of the rabbit in a thick and messy squalor of crimson. Malcolm wailed ineffectually, sort of ineptly, and his little legs writhed and the hairs of his pelt were inedible, so I spat out the lump I had bitten off onto the floor. Some children opposite me laughed. The mother and father were oblivious, just kept reading their newspapers. Malcolm expired from blood loss, and I ate him some more, picking out the hairs and biting off flap after flap of his skin. Rather delicious, dark, rich, rough with the pelt, but the meat itself of his only recently deceased body upon which his white hairs amassed was succulence itself. I didn't disturb his sunken cheeks and the whiskered nose and the half-shut eyes and the limp mouth with sagging tongue. I didn't care much for the offal inside him. It was beginning to get dark outside. The train started to get very busy and a woman wanted to sit next to me. She seemed undeterred by the carnage in my lap. I removed the hutch and the woman dropped into the seat next to me. She was a beautiful woman. Her hair was blonde, but dirtily blonde. Adorable dimples marked the corners of her warm and avid smile. What a perfume hung about her. Her breasts rose and fell in her shirt as she breathed. I could see them. She was a bit out of breath from running. Perhaps she got to the platform at the last minute. She said something which I didn't hear, but I quickly withdrew from my small reverie to ask her what she said. Could I try some of your rabbit? She said. I'm so hungry. It looks delicious. This was all very puzzling, but I liked her, and it seemed rude to refuse, 
and I felt blessed that she was giving me the time of day, and that it was me that she'd chosen to sit beside. Something about me must have drawn her in. He was called Malcolm, after Malcolm X, a hero of mine. Malcolm was meant to be a present for my daughter's birthday, but they cancelled the snack trolley, and I got really hungry, so my lips dribbled red with each utterance, and throughout my faltering exposition I'd raised up the carcass with its missing lumps, a sort of grisly exhibit. Wow, that's amazing. What a story. I want some. Please, can I have some? She said, so softly, in a sort of feminine whisper voice. Sure, I said. I liked that she was asking something of me, that I had the power to grant her request, to bestow upon her what she desired. So often the inverse was true, for me, where women were concerned. The carcass was cordially dispatched. I felt light and gregarious, lighter somehow, something unloaded as the rabbit left my hands. She took what was left of the mauled, maimed, white rabbit in her hands and bit down exuberantly into the flesh. A mouthful came away, and she kissed each bite with relish, her pale chin and cheeks rudded so sumptuously, incarnadined, a Lady Macbeth. She munched and spat out a bone, a diminutive morsel of hard rabbit limb. A child picked it up and dutifully gave it back to her. Thank you, love, she said, smiling a bloody smile at the child. What is that? the child asked, pointing to the almost unrecognisable corpse of the rabbit resting on my partner's open palms. It's a, a rabbit, Poppet. It was meant as a present for this gentleman's daughter, she began pointing in my direction. But he got hungry, so he ate it. She hurried through the explanation quite breathlessly, with a sort of mortification on behalf of the tale's sorry and weak protagonist. I took no issue with his choices, his actions, my choices, my actions. The little girl started crying. How could you do that? she sobbed. And her sobbing intensified as she noticed the empty hutch. She knew that it should have a quiet, fluffy, snuffling occupant, but she couldn't articulate as much. Children a very inarticulate. Darling, the child's mother said from a couple of seats away, stop bothering the grown-ups. Come and play I spy. I remember hearing over my shoulder, I spy with my little eye, something beginning with D. Door? No. Dad? No. Duck? Where? No. Dead rabbit is the answer. I spy a dead rabbit. But they told her to shut up. I suddenly felt very melancholy, and I suddenly felt, like the feeling of love, some sacred presence beside me. The sunset, marvellously golden at the far edge of the horizon, caught in the glass of the windows. 
I pressed my left ear to the window. I kissed the window. I was quite overcome as I watched the departing light, lingering, lingering so finally, in such small but hopeful quantity, at the horizon's edge, at the edge of a sky, dark dominated. And then I turned to my right and I saw the woman, the beautiful woman, her beautiful lips stained with rabbit blood, by whose presence I was lucky enough to be graced. She touched me like grace itself. She was lovely. She was loveliness. Well she wore the particular red of the rabbit's blood. I was going my way, she hers, and yet we were together, just for a while. And she was lovely. She was grace. What is your name? I asked. Oh, I can't believe I forgot to say. It's Eve. I wished Adam was my name. I wish my name was Adam, I replied. What is your name? She asked. It doesn't matter, I remember saying. I'm nobody. But you are somebody. I am nobody. But she was somebody. I love you, I remember saying. I loved her. And then I remembered. It was because of that little girl, I remembered. But I have a daughter, and I have to get to her. I can't just disappear from her life. You're lovely. Know that I love you. I feel something close to love, closer to love than I've felt for so long. And I thank you for sitting next to me. I couldn't bring May a gift, little May. I'm sorry her gift has been destroyed, but I'm not going to fail her more than that. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there to witness the hour, the hour when... How old is she going to be, your daughter? Which birthday is it? Eve inquired. I didn't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'd neglected to realise that I didn't know. Come on, she said. You don't really care. You don't really want to be there. Don't you want to be with me? She finished, letting the question hang in the air. I, I do, I said, but... Uh. And the but was enormous. It hurt. It pierced me. But I couldn't say any more. My words felt nothing worth. I remember the clash of the bin lid as she fed the depleted rabbit carcass into the mouth of the nearest bin. The blood was drying under my mouth. Come on, she said. What do you want? And I followed. And I did. I did. What? I wanted. Before she led me away, I scooped the crimson carcass of that rabbit out of the bin. Malcolm, still full of his singular whiteness, and I put him in my bag. I abandoned the hutch. I arrived later than I said, but I was in time for May's birthday, for the hour which marked her having grown up one year. The moment she went 
from whatever age she'd been to whatever age she now was. Vera asked me if I wanted anything to eat, and I said, I wasn't hungry. I'd already eaten. But when it was time for presents, I took out what was left of Malcolm from my bag and gave it to May. She giggled and held her nose, saying that Malcolm stank what was left of him. Her hands got very bloody, and an organ I couldn't identify dropped onto the floor in front of everyone. The children ran away, and the adults protested and made a lot of sensible, loud noise. But May wasn't running away. She wasn't weeping. She was content. The organ that I dropped out of him onto the floor, I suddenly realised was a kidney. This was her birthday, and I was there. I was the life and soul of the party. Malcolm was the life and soul, the bloody, rotting, raw corpse he was. May took Malcolm in her hands and said she'd bury it in the morning. Him, I remember correcting her. Not it. Him. Then Vera, who seemed to be floating, approached me. She was very close. I could smell her. Babe, you really do have the oddest sense of humour, she said. She spoke to me. It wasn't insulting. I quite liked her talking to me like that, the way she was talking to me, the tone of voice she chose as she addressed me in that strange, singular moment. What sort of a gift is that? You're sick, you are, some friend of Vera's said. I remember feeling like a child again, a sort of dull thud of humiliation in my body. I looked at my feet. I did my best. I just got hungry, is all, I remember saying. You and your hungers, the same man said. You're disgusting. I couldn't help but agree, but quite unexpectedly, Vera pitched in. Oh, fuck off, Gordon, you wanker. So Gordon was his name. He's done all right. He's far from perfect, but he showed up, not quite on time, almost empty-handed, but May loves him, and I... Vera thought for a minute and chose her words far more carefully than I was used to doing. I kind of almost love him too. Then, with revigorated surety, I love him. I stopped thinking about Vera and May and Gordon. I began imagining Eve standing before me, the Eveness of Eve, that Eve that I had met and shared my daughter's birthday present with. But I was here now, not there, and she was wherever she was, and not with me. So I stopped thinking about her, and I looked at May, and I was acutely aware of all the consternation and bustle and horror around me. But there was May, and her eyes. Her blue eyes were a still, quiet, and honest blue. She put Malcolm in the bin. He didn't matter. But she mattered. She knew that I knew she mattered. She rushed towards me with ineffable sweetness and wrapped her arms around my legs. 
she was so small, and I was so much bigger than her that this was the best way to hug. The best way by far. What an embrace it was. She was forgiving, and she was able to forgive. She had a sort of inarticulate wisdom. She had it in spades. She was wise and forgiving, way beyond her years. My girl, my sweet, my close, my gentle, my flesh and blood, my poppet, my child. And I remember looking down at her and saying in a very soft voice, but in a voice that I knew she would be able to hear, I'm so sorry, May. My darling, I'm so sorry. And she looked up at me. Her eyes were as calm and blue and simple as I had ever seen eyes be. What for, Daddy? she said. I couldn't answer.